Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, October 2nd, and we are talking about the most controversial tech stock of 2020. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's plain provider of pre-published picture proof, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, happy to be back again talking about a high-growth company after last week's show where we <laughs> talked about the exact opposite of that. <laughs> you know, I can feel it in your energy levels. You know, we were talking about value stocks last week. It got you down. We're back in the growth space, and I'm, I'm happy that you're excited. <laughs> and we're talking about a brand new direct listing. Repeat that, brand new direct listing, not an IPO, Palantir Technologies, a company that I had heard of prior to this. I didn't think this company was ever going to come public, so color me surprised that it is, and surprise, it's an interesting business. It's a very interesting business. It's been called the most secretive startup in Silicon Valley. Um, it is kind of in this odd space of tech and defense contractor it has some big, big names backing it. So people that have been following the unicorn space, these highly valued private companies, probably know this name already. But for folks who don't, we're going to do a rundown. We're going to basically take it through Brian's checklist and give an overview. Start out with the simple stuff, Brian. Palantir, trading under the ticker PLTR, uh, just about a 15 to $20 billion company. I think they debuted at about 20. They're down around 15 or so now. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, pretty sizable business. You can understand why this was called uh, a unicorn. This company was founded in 2003 by uh, Peter Thiel, uh, Alexander Karp, uh, who is currently uh, the CEO, and Stephen Cohen. All three co-founders are still with the business today. Uh, Thiel is the chairman. Stephen Cohen is the president. Alexander Karp is the uh, is the uh, CEO. The idea here was actually, I think, Peter Th- uh, Peter Thiel's uh, brainchild. Peter Thiel was the famous founder of uh, of PayPal, also an early investor in uh, in Facebook. While at PayPal. You know, fraud detection was a major part of PayPal's success. When you're moving money back and forth, you really have to do a lot of work to make sure that fraud isn't happening. His idea was to take a PayPal-like approach to use that technology to fight uh, to fight terrorism. Uh, that was the kind of brainchild behind Palantir, and obviously, the company's been extremely successful. Yeah, it has, and I mean, it's it's got some big names backing it, so maybe maybe no surprise that it started out with uh, with a little bit of a head start there. But I think they they really saw an opportunity with this business to focus on government contracts in particular, and and really kind of maybe working in a space that tech didn't focus nearly as much, certainly back when this company was founded, um, but definitely even now. Um, but that that was a huge part of the original story with this company is we're going to focus on basically the defense space, the the counterterrorism space. Um, and I believe a CIA nonprofit venture arm was where they got a lot of their early funding. So the early days of this business looks a lot different than most companies that we talk about on the show. 
Yeah. And at its core, this is a software company that is focused on big data and big data analytics. Uh, with their early funding from uh, directly related to the CAA, they focused entirely on the intelligence uh, community uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, what excited me about that was that they say that they are competing against essentially homegrown solutions. Software like this didn't really exist uh, 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 before a Palantir came along. It's taken them a tremendous amount of work and effort to get inside some of these companies because selling to the CIA, uh, the FBI, that must be an enormously long and complex process. But I do really like that they are kind of a one of a kind in the software space. And you mentioned the direct listing. We should we should emphasize that this is a little different than the IPO. You might you might see it thrown out there. A lot of people will kind of use IPO as shorthand, even for things that are direct listing. Uh, the process is a little bit different, um, but we didn't see that that pop that we've noticed with so many of these companies that have gone through the IPO route. Uh, this direct listing route is a little bit different, a little bit less common, um, becoming a bit more common over the last couple of years. We've seen some big names do it, and Palantir is just one more to that list. Yeah, and importantly, with the direct listing, no new shares were, were created in, in the process. Instead, uh, about 250 million shares that were already created, already a part of the company, uh, were, were already owned by other investors, were just resold uh, on the public markets. The company did not get any big uh, boost of proceeds, as we normally see from uh, an IPO. However, now that it is public, it certainly has the option to do secondary offerings down the road to raise capital. So that's an important distinction here. No new shares were created. Instead, existing shares just became listed on a public exchange. While we're talking about shares, we should probably talk a little bit about the voting structure setup. You mentioned the kind of the big three behind this business, Carp, Cohen, and Teal. They have a lot of power in this company. And you see that immediately when you look at the way that shares are broken down in the class structures that they have. This is a company with three uh, three different class uh, share classes. Uh, there's class A, which is the publicly traded ones. You buy that, you get one vote. There's also class B stock. Class B gets 10 votes per share. And class B can be converted into class A at, at any time. There's also something called class F shares, and the F basically stands for founder. And these are shares that are held just by Carp, Cohen, and Thiel. And there are some rules that they have to follow to basically maintain ownership of this. But if they do that, those class F shares alone give them 49.999% of the voting power of the company. Yet again, we see if you are investing in Palantir, know ahead of time, you get no say in anything. This is the founder's company and you have to go along with what they say. And that's kind of become table stakes in the tech industry at this point. Um, you know, it is very hard to buy into any recent tech IPO, you know, any company that's really come public in like the last five years or so um, and not see a founder or a, an early employee that has become an executive uh, wind up with a controlling stake in the business. It's just how a lot of these are structured. And for the most part, I think we're willing to give that power away because we're investing behind the founder, especially if it's a founder. Um, we, we like the drive that comes with that, uh, but it is not without its flaws. You know, there are some companies I can think of, you know, Snap in particular, where, you know, some people felt like the company didn't deserve that type of control based on the CEO's pedigree. Um, I don't know that that's the case here with Palantir. This is, this is a pretty established leadership group. 
Yeah, I don't. Uh, I'm not going to have any problem with Peter Thiel continuing to call the <laughs> shots here. He has clearly put up a tremendous amount of his own capital uh, to get this company off the ground. Again, all three co-founders are still with the company today. This company was founded 17 years ago. It's not brand new. So that's actually a really long stretch of time for all three founders to still be involved in the C-suite. If you are going to be an investor here, you should be entirely comfortable with that amount of voting power. It's just still good to know that ahead of time. (laughs) Brian, when we talk about different companies on the show, uh, we throw around the idea of data and big data pretty often. Um, It it has become kind of a catch-all for a lot of sub-industries within that. Palantir operates in that space, but I think we probably need to unpack specifically what they do and who they do it for to really understand how this business works. Yeah, well, to your point, um, they really got their start with a focus on the intelligence community. So the CIA, uh, the FBI, all very early customers are there. And one other thing that's worth pointing out, the company was founded in 2003, but it didn't sell to its first client until 2008. So it was kind of building this product in the background in stealth mode uh, for five years before they even landed their uh, first customer. Makes sense that that uh, the CIA and the FBI were to really vet this software thoroughly before they uh, before they signed on. But it's essentially a big data uh, analytics platform. Palantir points out that they are not themselves the source of the data. They don't mine for data. They don't scrape data. Instead, it takes data that already exists. It brings it into one unified platform, and it allows users to make decisions and uh to create intelligence from that data, from that unstructured data. So that's really at the core of what this company does. If you're thinking in terms of value add, um, what what they're really offering to customers is the ability to recognize patterns and start to identify what might be happening, hopefully before it's happening. That That's really the value prop is we're going to help you connect all these dots in a way that makes action easier and makes things that, you know, going back to the PayPal example, potential fraud, uh, but more in Palantir's example, counterterrorism, um, stop them before they happen. Yeah. I mean, data is data and data by itself is, is meaningless. It's the interpretation of that data that can provide insights. And in Palantir's case, for anti-terrorism uh, purposes. So that's an important distinction here. They're not creating it. They're gathering it from multiple sources. They're bringing it together on one platform and they're allowing users to create intelligence from that data. We, we talked about the direct listing before and given that they didn't raise any money, Brian, I guess it's natural to ask, why did they go public? That's a great question. And I thought this company, since given the nature of its business, was going to stay private for a long period of time as you pointed out, they didn't raise capital, so they weren't in dire need of capital. And we're going to get to their balance sheet in a little bit, and it looks pretty good uh, prior to that. However, they started in the government space, selling to governments for counterterrorism purposes. They have since shifted a little bit to take to say, we have this platform that is extremely useful with analyzing data. Let's take that and let's convert that to the commercial sector. So they have done a great job about signing on enormous companies uh, that also want to take big, big things of unstructured data, unify it and draw conclusions. So they have landed a number of big uh, clients such as um, uh, Merck, uh, Fiat Chrysler, uh, et cetera. 
One of the reasons for them to come public was by becoming public, first off, it's a major media event. I guarantee you that a whole bunch of people now know the name Palantir that didn't uh, a week ago. And by, by becoming public and allowing investors to participate uh, in the upside, it, they think it'll give them much more visibility and the ability to sell to more and more clients. You can't argue with that given how much attention direct IPOs and direct listings have gotten this year. No, I, I think that's right, and I didn't really connect those dots until I, uh, you know, was kind of reading through the outline and, and started thinking about some of the thoughts you're putting down, Brian. But you know, I, I think about a company even like Pinterest, where you know that business I think was was kind of a sleepy business for a while, and went through the IPO process, uh, is now regularly in the news because their shares are doing great. Um, but that became a marketing event. In and of itself, you know, like the idea of going public and then having your shares out there is a great way to raise awareness for a business, and, and it kind of becomes a selling tool if you're trying to get your name into the corporate space and, and really just create buzz. And then maybe that's the play here. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, both of us had heard the name Palantir before this. I just assumed they were purely in the government space. Turns out that over half their revenue now comes from the commercial space. I completely understand how why coming public will bring them onto a whole bunch of executives' radars that wouldn't be there before. I think it was a great marketing move. Um, one, one thing that I think is pretty interesting with the, the process of this company going public is what we've heard from their leadership team. And uh, you know, I mentioned before that they're probably a little bit more defense contractor than tech. Um, and the CEO made a point to kind of distance the company from traditional Silicon Valley and traditional tech as they were making this grand entrance. Yeah, if you read through the CEO's letter, they go out of their way to say that they they started in Silicon Valley, but they have since moved. This company is now headquartered in Denver, Colorado, because they say that they no longer share the values that are uh, rampant throughout uh, Silicon Valley. For example, they say, quote unquote, uh, from the start, we have repeatedly turned down opportunities to sell, collect, or mine data. That stands in stark contrast to some of the biggest tech companies uh, in, in Silicon Valley. So very clearly drawing a line in the sand and standing on one side of it. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because they are they're a controversial business because of how their products are used and who they tend to work with. You know, um, Surveillance and counterterrorism are things that are important, but also things that come with a lot of very fraught elements and can can very quickly get very complicated. Um, and you know it, it would be easy to condemn a business like that. But their point here is, you know you have all of these people that are marketing access to data, your data, and that's the business model. You know that, that's what's going on with social media. That's what's going on with most of these internet properties. Um, we think that we're on the other side of this. You might take some exception to how we're doing things and who we're doing them with, but we actually think that this is, in some ways, a, a more noble way to handle this space. Yeah, and we're going to make no value calls there. I completely understand why some people are going to look at this company and say, oof, big brother. No, thank you. I do not want to invest in this thing. And there's no harm with taking a pass here. But like it or not, this company exists and uh, they are going to do what they're going to do. They're, I think the, the reason that they were founded was good. Again, keeping Americans and their allies safe, anti, anti-terrorism. However, there are definitely some ethical questions that need to be asked about uh, about using the data for certain purposes. And they say that they're finding you know heedles, uh, needles in multiple, multiple haystacks. Well, uh, the, the general population is that haystack, and they still have to know a lot about you to find that needle. So there are definitely some ethical dilemmas here. Yeah, 
And if you're doing any research on this business, I think one of the, the main products you'll probably encounter is Gotham. Um, Foundry is another one of their big products, but Gotham was kind of their first one. And and what you see repeatedly with Palantir is a, a, a fun naming convention with a lot of their stuff. Gotham's kind of a nice shout out there. Uh, but but quickly, Brian, what, what does that help clients do? That is the platform that runs government operations uh, in defense and uh, intelligence uh, department. So again, it is kind of the core engine that takes big data sets. Uh, it allows users to uh, allows analysts to look at them, allows for data to be shared uh, whenever the permissions match up, and it allows for the planning and execution of responses in the real world. So Gotham was their first platform and their core product. Their second product was called uh, Foundry, which is kind of like a, a repository uh, for data. It helps to bring in data, to uh, to unify it, to make it easily accessible. And that's one of the things that this company points out over and over again is in, in big organizations and, and government organizations, data isn't necessarily connected together. There are a lot of silos within these massive organizations. And before Palantir, there wasn't really a central place where this data could all be integrated together. That's one of the things that they say they can do. And they actually call out that they have network effects in, in some way within organizations. So the more data that gets put onto Palantir's platform, the easier it is for pe other people in that organization to access it uh, and, and use it. That's, a, that's an argument that I buy. It's not a true network effect uh, in, in the sense that uh, that we've seen with other other platforms, but I do think that does provide a competitive advantage for this company. Something that's kind of been on my mind as I've looked at them is like, what what makes them similar and what makes them different from the conventional software business that we talk about. And I my read at least, and and I might be wrong on this, is that their solutions require a lot more client customization than the average SaaS service. You know, if, if you're in like the CRM space um, or you're, you know, helping salespeople or whatever, there's a certain amount of interoperability that pretty much every organization is going to want. And, and I think what you're probably going to see with this is the cost of getting customers is probably going to be a little bit higher. And also the level of customization that those customers need is probably going to be a little bit higher than what you typically see with enterprise software. Yeah, a little bit higher is is a nice way of putting it, Dylan. I was I was going to say uh, we're going to get into the numbers in a little bit, but the onboarding course costs of getting customers on this platform is staggering. I mean, it just takes so much salesmanship and uh, and marketing uh, and effort, and probably it's a multi year period to get one client onto this platform. Given 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 the stakes. However, the flip side of that is once they're on, holy cow, are they on? One stat that they, uh, that they call out is that of their top 20 customers, the average of those top 20 customers has been with Palantir for six and a half years. The average. And keep in mind, while this company is 17 years old, it's only been selling products for 12. That, that speaks volumes about the switching costs that are inherent into this business model. However, as you point out, Wow, do they have to spend heavily to get those customers in the door? Yeah, that's that's a lot of cash out the window, and it makes sense. You know, I mean, if you're willing to make that investment and that payment, it's truly an investment if you can keep customers for that long and you really have them satisfied. Um, one other way that they might be a little bit different than some of the other businesses that we typically talk about is the growth rate isn't quite as high as you might expect for a company that operates in the software space and is just making its debut now. Yeah, and I think that's partially due to the nature of, of the business. 
and how hard it is to land customers. And the company is very clear that it is a subscription-based model and a major part of their growth strategy is land and expand. So land, get that customer in the door. And then once you're in, grow and grow and grow within within your customer base. Um, so in 2019, their sales growth was not all that impressive given the, given the valuation for it at this company. I think it was in the mid-20s. That number did accelerate pretty significantly in the first half of this year. It did grow 49% through the first half of 2020. Uh, that was up to $481 million. That gives the company a run rate of, of about a billion dollars in revenue this year. 49% is pretty good, but again, keep in mind that was a bit of an abnormality and it was a significant acceleration when compared to the prior year. Uh, one thing I want to go back to is that land and expand strategy you were talking about. And it would be easy to say like, oh, you know, the, the typical software approach wouldn't work here because you're talking about government contracts. And I was reading this piece in prepping for the show um, that was in Quartz talking about how early on when they were, you know, before they had many contracts in place, they had actually given free training and software to soldiers uh, in Afghanistan and that they were able to build loyalty through the folks that were on the ground because it was nice, easy, intuitive software. And that basically forced the hand of the government to invest in the software and then create a relationship with Palantir. So while they might not operate, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, uh, Dropbox or, or Slack does, they are still using some of those tactics, which is pretty wild. Yeah. And they've done a great job with it. They have clearly shown a history of finding ways into these organizations. And I can't imagine how hard it is to, to to get a company on board with this. But once they're on board, they stick around for a long time. And a part of Palantir's model is to is to make its customers sign a multi-year uh, sales contract. It's the average, uh, the average, what it pushes for in the beginning is five years. So a five-year uh, renewal period with, uh, with, you know, renewals after that point. They've done a great job of 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 keeping customers around and convincing them to 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 uh, to spend more overtime. So that's obviously something that we love to see as SaaS investors. Yeah, and it's key. If you're going to spend a lot of money bringing people in, they got to stick around, and that's got to be money well spent. Otherwise, it's going to be tough for the numbers uh, to really work out for you. And and I think perhaps more than any business that we've talked about in a while, uh, I would say the switching costs for this company uh, and this company's products, Brian, are probably higher than any other business that we've talked about. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Again, super costly up front. Once you're in, you're in, and you're probably going to be in for a long period of time. Now, the rest of the income statement actually looks pretty good too, uh, as well. So gross margin for this company, again, it's a subscription-based model, uh, has been growing, recently touching 72%, pretty good overall. They are spending copious amounts of money on sales and marketing, on overhead, on R&D. Uh, actually, it was good to see that R&D expenditures in the first half of the year were pretty flat, and sales and marketing expenses were actually down uh, when compared to the pre -year, uh, prior year. However, still high in absolute terms at uh, $200 million. On the, the bottom line, not looking too good. The net loss for the company for the first six, uh, six months of the year on a gap basis was $164 million. The good news is there is that that was almost all, that was more than all stock-based compensation uh, related. The company actually reported an adjusted net income. So on an adjusted basis, Dylan, they are uh, producing a uh, net income, $17 million in the first half of the year. It's nice to see that they've already reached that level of scale. 
And one thing that we have to talk about when we talk financials, Brian, is what's going on with their cash coverage in the balance sheet. Um, decent amount of cash here. Um, and, and you said it before. I mean, they didn't necessarily need to raise capital. That's why we were able to go with this direct listing route. Um, so it, pretty, pretty decent balance sheet here, I think. Yeah, $1.5 billion in cash. Uh, that compares to about $300 million in debt. That gives them plenty of liquidity, and they did not need to raise uh, capital. One thing that I found uh, notable, and this is why it always makes sense to check both the net income and free cash flow. Again, $17 million in adjusted non-GAAP uh, net income. However, free cash flow during the first six months of the year, negative $230 million. I'm not entirely sources of the huge delta between those two. It could just be the, the timing of customer payments and when contracts uh, renew, but that's a pretty big uh, difference between the two. Again, always look at both free cash flow and net income. Yeah. And, and that's going to be a staple of a business like this is, is, is a little bit of funkiness with the accounting because they are in multi-year contracts. They are generally inking deals um, and, and then having to actually deliver on those deals for years out. Um, so, so there's always going to be some stuff that you kind of need to dive into there. But I think all things considered... Nothing crazy, nothing, nothing that like really shouts out as you know red flag or or anything like that. When I look at the numbers, the only thing I would say is I was expecting revenue growth to be a little bit higher, but um, they they operate in kind of a fundamentally different space than a lot of businesses we talk about. And this could be a very lumpy revenue growth kind of company, or at least much more so than we've seen uh, in the past. This company only has 125 customers, 125 despite doing almost a billion dollars in revenue. As you can imagine, landing one or two more customers can really change the top line growth rates. So you're just going to have to accept that fact. Some years, they're probably going to land many more than others. So growth rate might not be as smooth as it is for other SaaS companies. A quick who's who on that on that list of customers, Brian. The the CIA, the FBI, uh, NSA, CDC, Marine Corps. So a lot of the government entities that you're talking about. But you know, to your point earlier about the the commercial enterprise they're getting into, Airbus, BP, Credit Suisse, Fiat, Cross, uh, Fiat Chrysler. When you see 125 customers, do you worry at all about customer concentration? Oh, of course, that's a risk here. And that was definitely something I was going to bring up in the, in the back end. No surprise to see that customer concentration is a big risk here. The top three customers are almost 30% of revenue. That number has been coming down substantially over time. Again, they started out with just the, uh, the CIA and the FBI, who at one point were probably 100% uh, of revenue. A major part of this company's de-risking plan is to land more commercial customers over time. I think that the direct list, uh, the the direct listing will certainly help to raise their profile there, as well as the fact that you can go to them and say, "Well, the FBI trust FBI trusts us, the NSA <laughs> trusts us, the CIA trusts us. I think you can trust us too." Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good rubber stamp uh, if you're trying to pitch to enterprise customers. It also might make it easier and, and a little bit more efficient for them with their spend. You know, if they're going after enterprise customers, I think the customer acquisition costs uh, per customer uh, and per contract might come down a little bit. That's definitely going to drop, or at least it should, if this direct listing uh, pay, pays off for them. One other thing that I was particularly impressed with. To your point before, they said that it was a tremendous cost to them to get these these new customers uh, up and running. They have uh, devoted a tremendous amount of R&D to getting the time from uh, 
landing a contract to deployment down significantly. They said in the last year, they've brought the t- the average time that it takes a customer to get up and running down by a factor of five. That is a, an impressive move. And they even said that some customers can be up and running on their system in a matter of six hours. That should, if that isn't true and they can keep duplicating that, that should go a long way uh, to helping to speed up customer acquisition. I think anyone that follows these shows and knows your checklist, Brian, knows that we like to look at management and culture a little bit. We, we talked about the anti-Silicon Valley tone uh, that CEO Alex Karp set as they were making their public debut. Um, how is he generally looked at by employees? Pretty good, actually. Uh, the company has uh, a couple hundred ratings on Glassdoor.com, and it gets 3.9 stars out of five. That's a that's a pretty good number overall. 86% of employees do approve of the CEO, and more than three quarters of them would recommend the company to a friend. That's those are overall pretty good numbers uh, for for any company. And again, the thing that impresses me about this management team is that all three co-founders are still here. So you have Carp, you have Cohen, who is the president, and you have Thiel, who is the chairman of the board. Inside ownership here is also pretty high. Uh, Thiel, uh, Peter Thiel owns more than 20% uh, of the company. Uh, Alexander Carp, the CEO, owns 8%, and Cohen owns uh, 3%. Uh, that right there is over 30% ownership from just the th- three founders. So lots of skin in the game. Yep. And proven track record. You know, if, if you're buying Palantir, you're investing alongside Peter Thiel uh, and, and some very other uh, successful folks as well. So, you know, there there is nothing to sneeze at in terms of the ownership and the skin in the game with this business. Um, it is not without its risks, though. I mean, I, I think we've definitely hit the fact that there's a long sales cycle with this company. Um, there's some pretty heavy customer acquisition costs, but there's some other stuff there, too, that we should probably hit. Stock-based compensation is extremely high. They are in hiring mode right now. So what's that going to be now that they're public, now that you can trade? I mean, typically we see a lot of companies ramp that up uh, once they do come public. So something to keep in mind. They're also losing money on a a gap basis and burning it on a free cash flow basis. I would hope that both of those things are going to reverse in the not too distant future, but something to, uh, something to keep in mind. And then there's just the valuation. Uh, so this company is going to do about a billion dollars in revenue. If their market cap is say $15 billion, that's 15 times sales. Overall, when compared to a lot of other companies that have come public, that's actually pretty reasonable. Um, but it's still, in absolute and historic terms, a, a, a high number. It's, it's reasonable, but I think it's also rich given growth rate. I think, I think this is a helpful thing for me where you, know, you, you can look at that multiple on revenue, but also understanding the revenue growth rate. There are businesses that have higher price to sales ratios out there that actually might be slightly more attractive to me because they are growing at 40 or 50% year over year. Fair enough. And they also might have higher gross margins, uh, a higher margin pro- uh, potential uh, too. So that it, those are all uh, fair points. One of the, the questions that I have is really about the company's long-term potential because if you are selling to big customers and you already have some of the biggest uh, on your platform, how much room is there for you to grow? In the company's, uh, in the company's uh, documents, they do say that they estimate that their total addressable market opportunity that they see is $119 billion. Take that for whatever you want to. But again, if that number is anywhere close to true, they believe that they have a lot of uh, growth runway ahead of them. It's just a matter of how much actual runway could there be when they already have landed so many of their big customers. 
Yeah, I think expanding into enterprise for them is huge in terms of really unlocking more market value. Um, and and it'll be interesting to see what they wind up doing with that market and what the revenue mix looks like three or five years from now. Because if they want to really meaningfully grow, there are a lot of applications where I think you know fraud detection, making sense of all these disparate data systems really makes sense for multinational companies um, and, and businesses that have pretty large operations. Um, it's, it's just really a matter of how much can they cater their software and their products to that market. Yeah, I think that that's right. So Dylan, we've gone through. I think that there's a lot of positives here. There's there's some negatives, but what's your bottom line? Are you are you gonna is this going on your watch list? I think certainly one of the most interesting stocks of 2020. Um, I have wanted to see the books on this business for about three years, and so I'm really excited that we have the prospectus in front of us. Um, this is going to be a lame answer, but I, I kind of want to wait and see a little bit with this business. Um, I think more than almost any company that we talk about, there is reputation risk that comes with Palantir. Um, they've they've dealt with protests outside their headquarters. Um, they are a hot button issue for a variety of reasons. Brian, you mentioned Big Brother uh, before. Um, there are there are some concerns that people have, you know, when it comes to uh, a, pr- a private business uh, being involved in surveillance. And uh, I don't really know what side of that I'm on. I'm still kind of working through a lot of that. But I I need to read more about them and really really have a good grip on who they are and where they're going. And I need to see you know the next six to twelve months uh, of them as a publicly traded company before I'm hopping in. Well, count me in the exact same boat that you are. I think that there's a lot of reasons to be bullish on the business, the management team, the margins, especially the competitive advantage here. I haven't personally gone through all the potential ethical things here. And like it or not, this company is going to be attached to the hip of politics. Uh, so you're going to have to deal with that uh, part of it too. But overall, I think from an if you're looking at it purely as an investment, there are reasons to be excited and to put this company on your watch list. Yeah, I don't know if we actually hit it before, but I think it's about 70% gross margins. Um, pretty attractive growth rate. I think for me, the the morality of what they do aside, there are more interesting SaaS players that are growing at higher rates and don't come with some of the ethical issues that, that Palantir raises. And so I, I kind of say, like, this is super interesting. It's it's hard for my brain right now. And if I'm going to be buying stuff, I'd like to focus on things that have financials I can wrap my head around a little bit more and are just easier for me. I don't have to do as much mental gymnastics. Fair enough. There are no called strikes <laughs> in investing, right? You can you can look at as many as you want. You don't have to swing every time. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Is that is that Buffett? Is that Munger? That sounds like Buffett. Yeah, it does. All the good ones do. (laughs) But Brian, you have some of your own quips, and uh, I'm always happy to have you on to share them. So thank you for joining me on today's show. Anytime, Dylan. (laughs) Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. Just don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.